This is Bloomberg Business of Sports. The world's changing. And what are things we can do to, to transform our business and engage our fans globally in different ways? People are using their name and likeness to create more opportunities, more stakes in companies. In order to turn the organization around, we had to turn it around not only just on the baseball operations side, but on the business operations side. Football and any other sport is very difficult, but I like to broaden my horizons and be able to expand sports. You need to be consumed live. And that's a big competitive advantage for intellectual property holders of sports content in the media landscape. Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, everyone. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Mike Lynch. And I'm Michael Barr. And this is the Bloomberg Business of Sports podcast, where we explore the big money issues in the world of sports. And today it is a Formula E fast car special. We've got Jamie Regal and Michael Andretti with us. We're going to start with Jamie Regal. He is the CEO of Formula E. And Jamie, it's great to have you with us because it's all happening in Brooklyn this weekend. Formula E is back. The fans are back. Tell us how you put all this together because it's been a long time coming to get racing back the way we want it. We are delighted to be coming back to New York. It's one of the uh, features of the Formula E calendar historically. You know, we look to race in some of the most iconic cities in the world, and and New York obviously uh, sits at the pinnacle of that list. And so we're delighted to be coming back. Um, The preparation over the last uh, year, really, around setting up our calendar, which we announce usually in in July for the subsequent season, has been uh, chaotic, to put it mildly, given the situation with COVID. Um, We're a global race series, so we're always trying to figure out you know, how can we take our, our championship around the world? But that's been particularly challenging given the uh, given the context we've been in over the last 18 months now uh, with local regulations and so on. So on the one hand, we're, we're super excited about New York. Um, it's an iconic venue for Formula E coming back to Brooklyn. We will be hosting fans, uh, which is one of the first races this year where we're actually going to be able to Put on our uh, put on our series in front of spectators, which is super exciting. On the other hand, you know we've been negotiating and and working with uh, you know the U.S. authorities and uh, border control and uh, Homeland Security and all that to be able to bring our championship in. And it's interesting our our first list that we submitted because there's a because the borders are technically closed for anyone coming from the Schengen area from Europe. Um, you know, and we're more of a European business. We typically bring about a thousand people in for the race, and they said, "Okay, well, here's the list you can you can bring in." And it was the list of the 24 drivers, and that was it. We wow. had to explain well, that it was <laughs> quite important for us to be able to bring a much bigger group than that. Each of the teams has their engineers, their mechanics. Obviously, we're shipping around a lot of kit around the world to put these races on, and uh, TV crews and so on. So anyway, we've been we've been working really closely with the. Uh, with the authorities and, and have the exemptions and, and we're fired up to come, but it's going to be um, more of a local race, even, even than uh, typical because, uh, because our group coming from Europe is, has to be small and we're hiring local people to be able to, uh, to put on the race, which, uh, which is a good thing, you know, sort of gets, uh, gets sport rebooted in New York. So we're really excited. Hey, Jamie, this is Michael Barr racing fool as I'm known around here. And, uh, I, I, you know, the, how's the calendar looking? Because, uh, you guys, uh, with it, with formula E being back, how are you guys looking calendar wise down the road? Yeah, it's been a, it's been a pretty, uh, delicate balance over the last 12 months. And, 
you know, last year we finished our season with six races in 10 days in Berlin, which is a little bit like what the NBA did in Orlando last year to, to finish off the season. We operate in a bubble, but we're a global series. And so this year we said, hey, we have to try to travel around the world and, and deliver our product. And this year it's been it's been good. We, we've juggled some venues, but we've been to Saudi Arabia. We've been to Rome, Italy. We've been to Valencia, Spain. We've been to Monaco, uh, which is sort of the home of motorsport. Um, and we've been, or at least to a European uh, audience, we've been in motorsport. And we've been, uh, you know, now we're now we're in the North American leg. We're in Pueblo, Mexico, New York. We've got London and Berlin coming. So, you know, we're pretty excited about what we've been able to deliver. It's been challenging. We haven't had fans at a lot of these events. They've been limited in terms of spectators, but we've been able to put the product on. We're going to announce our calendar next week uh, for uh, what we call Season 8, so the 2022 season, and and we're really excited because we've got a couple new venues, new cities that we're going to be announcing uh, in the first week of July, uh, one in Africa and another in North America. So, uh, you know, we're back on the growth path, which is great. Hey, Jamie, it's Mike up in Boston. Um, We just ran down those restrictions of the border control with the United States. Do you find the same sort of handicaps and hurdles dealing with other countries or, or some of the, what countries are the toughest and what are the easiest to, to deal with? Uh, look, the first thing I would say is, you know, we, we're trying to put on a global race series and be respectful uh, and protective of, of two, two groups in simple terms, right? One is what we call our ecosystem or our, our paddock, our, our group of people who travel around the world, right? We have to make sure that those individuals are, are, you know, minimizing risk as it relates to contracting COVID. You know, we're not a hockey team or a basketball team, um, you know, where if, if one or two uh, athletes go down, you know, you've got substitutes, right? We have, we have two drivers, so we really have to be protective of, uh, of, of, those, of those folks. And then, you know, perhaps even more importantly, we want to be very respectful in the context of uh, COVID of the local population, right? I mean, we want to be seen to be respecting local regulations. And, and the last thing we want to do is be seen to be contributing to uh, to the pandemic. And so, you know, those are sort of the, the overriding principles. Um, I would say, you know, each market has its own um, idiosyncrasies. So there's been some where we've been banned completely and we've not been able to travel, right? So we've not been able to have a race in, in, in China, for example, or race in Santiago, Chile, uh, was canceled this year due to uh, COVID restrictions and, and not being able to secure any exemptions to come into the country. On the other hand, in Rome, in April, we raced in Italy, in Rome, when the full city was on a lockdown. You know, we had to only travel between our hotel room and the racetrack, and, and the whole city was shut down. We couldn't enjoy uh, all that Rome has to offer, but we were able to put the product on. Um, so actually, when I look at the U.S., we're really excited about, you know, the exemptions that we have. And we're going to be trialing vaccine passports to get fans into uh, the venue without without COVID tests. So, you know, we're we're pushing the envelope as much as we can. And look, we're just we're just happy to be there, to be honest, after the last 18 months we've had. It's, it's just good to be back in the, in the U.S. and in New York in particular. You know, Jamie, widening the aperture a little bit to to look at the broader landscape around sort of the whole concept of E and EVs and, and electric cars. I mean, it does feel like the world is starting to come to you even from a consumer perspective. And I say this as someone who in the last year has bought an electric car. Uh, and it is an amazing thing. Once you're looking for it, you do kind of see this evidence. You see it from the big automakers. Help us understand how that trend fits into the fans, how it fits into the sponsorship aspect of this, kind of this this broader landscape. Absolutely. And I think you've 
seen an enormous shift even in the last 12 months uh, in terms of the push toward electric. And it's funny, if, if you're an electric car driver, right, and, and you purchased a Tesla or, or you purchased another model, most of those people you meet are huge advocates, right? right? And, and they're not going back unless, you know, perhaps they have a penchant for vintage cars or something like that because the power, you know, the acceleration, you know, just the quality of the drive is so high that the interface, you know, it's, it's a much more digital uh, environment, which, you know, we've all come to expect in our world. So, you know, that pace is accelerating. What was driving that? I mean, clearly Tesla played a huge, huge, huge role in catalyzing that market. Um, and I think what you're seeing now is, I guess, two or three elements, right? One is consumer pull, right? So what I was just referring to, right? Once, once, once people experience it, they want more. Um, number two, you know, the rest of the manufacturers are, are, are now pushing very hard to, to accelerate their, uh, electric fleets, and, and you're seeing that, you know, if you're if you're listening or watching advertising, you know, all of the advertising, particularly around sports, is around electric mobility. If you're watching the Euros right now, or you're watching the NHL playoffs, you know, you're seeing a lot of electric mobility advertising. And then you have government regulation, right? And you know, the politics of it uh, around electric mobility and climate change are different in each market, but generally speaking, everywhere in the world is is tightening the. Uh, emission standards, and uh, that's that's leading to to a change into a forcing factor for for the manufacturers. So, you know, th- those are the macro trends. Then you look at you know what are individual car companies looking to do. You know, even in my short time at Formula E, and I'm coming up on two years. You know, General Motors has said they're going fully electric yeah. by 2035. That I don't think there were many p- people predicting that. You know, up until the moment they announced it, Jaguar uh, in in Europe. They said they'll be fully electric by 2025. Um, you know, you've got pretty much every car manufacturer in the world has either said they're going fully electric and set a deadline, um, or you know they've made a strong commitment to have their entire fleet be uh, you know a mix of, of hybrids and and electric. So, you know, the trends are there and, and they're accelerating. And I think as you see, you know, ultimately if consumers experience a great product, you know, they want more of it. And and Car companies are there to, to serve that demand. And so, if I may follow, you know, how does that translate to the business side for you? Because if awareness is growing, presumably you've got not just automakers, but sort of the broader ecosystem that is embracing this movement, as it were. Are you seeing a, a meaningful uptick in sponsorship interest, or maybe from companies or types of companies or categories that, that you hadn't seen before? Yeah, so if you look at through a couple of different lenses, right? Let's start with the fans, right? If if, if I go back, Formula E, we're in our seventh season, so we're still a relatively new championship. In the beginning, you know, the question was, okay, well, can these cars go around the track? Do they go fast? Right. Um, you know, unless you were a hardcore motorsport fan, you know, are you even curious to experience the product? Or perhaps if you're a hardcore motorsport fan, you're you're disdainful of the product because, you know, it doesn't have all the attributes you associate with motorsports, right? The smells, the sounds, the, you know, those are sort of raw horsepower elements that people love about, you know, Formula One, Indy, or, or NASCAR. Um, what you're seeing now is people recognize that these cars are really high performance, and, and that's pulling fans in. And I think that that's the starting point. Then, um, you know, we talked about the manufacturers earlier. I think that the biggest shift we've seen, you know, the sponsors, to be honest, were there before because mm-hmm. most large global companies, you know, have a CSR program, have a commitment to, 
uh, climate change, recognize that they need at the board level a platform to talk about sustainability. And I think that was actually some of the early success that Formula E had in terms of attracting brands, perhaps ahead of, of where the consumer market was. The big shift we've seen in the last 12 months, 18 months, is, is the demand on the media side, meaning the, the broadcasters. So in the, in the U.S., we, we signed a partnership, uh, multi-year partnership with CBS, uh, to broadcast the races in, in Germany with, with ProSieben and France with Keep and, and for, I guess, the U.S. listeners, you may not know those brands, but those are very uh, digitally-led media companies in Europe who are disrupting the, the media landscape. And, and they're attracted to Formula E. Why? Because they see that there's advertising dollars yeah. around the content. Because the consumers are the consumers they want to target, right? We tend to have a younger fan base you know, a more urban fan base, a more digitally sort of minded fan base. So their advertisers want to reach that. And then, of course, the car companies themselves are are, are shifting significant portions of their advertising dollars toward uh, electric mobility and, and, and talking about their electric fleet. And, and you know, we're, we're a pure play on that, which, which is appealing to the media companies. Here comes Old Man Barr and the diehard racing fan, as you mentioned earlier. I think one of the things that's great, well, there are many things that's great about Formula E, but this goes back, that sound that Formula E has, it, it's not that guttural sound that you're used to in NASCAR or maybe in Indy racing, but this goes back to like 1967 when Parnelli Jones and the Andy Granatelli team had this, let's call it the Turman car. And it was a whoosh that went through. You didn't. You didn't have that sound of of the normally aspirated engine. And this is pretty much the same way. It's just a little more different from the fact that this is totally from you charging the battery. And these cars have a lot of giddy up, as you said. That's right. One of the first um, events I went to when I joined Formula E in 2019 was was in northern Italy, which is which is Ferrari land, and. Uh, I kept getting all these questions about, you know, the sound, the sound, the sound. And I said, well, that's the point. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, a a typical motorsport fan is already really well served. And I think that's, that's something we should, we, you know, we're very explicit about with Formula E. We didn't start a racing series to disrupt the racing world, right? We started a racing series because we saw these trends between, you know, electric mobility, sustainability, and using sport to, to tell those kind of narratives. And so, you know, we lean into the fact that it's it's quiet. Now, actually, they're not quiet, right? I mean, to to your point, what you hear, and if you ask my my eight year old son, he thinks it sounds like Anakin Skywalker's speed race, right, <laughs> or, or or a Tie Fighter, yeah. and it's actually a very cool sound, right? It's just yeah. a different one, and and I think what you're seeing is 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 you know it depends who your target audience is, right? We we never claim that we're um, you know trying to compete with a, with a V12, right, in terms of that that, that guttural you know feel. But what we do allow is, you know, cars to race in cities, which otherwise wouldn't be possible because of those sounds. And, you know, we're going to announce, you know, we're, we're racing in New York, obviously, next week. We're going to announce another North American city without betraying too much, which, which used to have an Indy uh, race in, in the middle of the city. And, and we're going to be able to go there and we're going to go there because we don't make as much noise. And, and that's, you know, something that I think is a really important point around, uh, you know, how formulae differentiates. Jamie, how about fan engagement over the last uh, 12 to 15 months? Uh, fans were stuck at home. They couldn't come out and watch any of the races at all. Did it help or, or hurt fan engagement right now as we turn the calendar into July of 2021? 
Well, look, there's no doubt that, you know, it's a major, major disruption that we've experienced. And because we're a younger sport, um, you know, relative to, to many others, whether it's in, in other codes of motorsport or, or some of the big team sports we all know and love, you know, we don't have uh, a, a depth of fan base that a lot of those sports have, right? And so for us, getting people to sample our product in simple terms, right, to come to Brooklyn, see the race, that's, that's how we grow the fan base. So, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to grow our fan base as, as opposed to necessarily serve a huge installed base. So, so not having racing for us has been particularly challenging, to be candid. That being said, um, you know, we're, we're a seven-year-old company. We lead with, with digital product uh, in terms of our you know, website and digital media and social and all these good things. And so, you know, we've been able to, to continue to engage our fans in, in that way. And, and what it's done is it's forced us to innovate um, on the product side, meaning a lot of the ideas that were perhaps on a whiteboard or, or sitting on a shelf and, and hadn't necessarily been the top three priority when we were racing with fans suddenly went straight up the uh, the list. And, and, you know, we launched uh, Race at Home last year, which is uh, our, our, our eSports series. Um, we've launched new digital properties, and we're doing a lot with our teams and partners around e-commerce and whatnot. So it, what it has done, and I think I think you'll see this from a lot of other sports properties as well, is, is it's really accelerated the innovation curve. Um, you know, out of necessity. And, and, and that's, uh, that'll be something I think we'll be able to harvest over time. So, Jamie, you know, I got to ask you, I mean, this was a tough year for businesses of all shapes and sizes. I mean, I think about here in New York, restaurants and fitness studios and you know, media companies, all you name it. I mean, everybody struggled, and, and especially because revenues were down. If you were able to put on your business, you were doing it in, in a limited way. As you mentioned earlier, as you alluded to, it's a pretty young enterprise that, that you're a part of. I, how tough was it? I mean, were there decisions you had to make in terms of either scaling back temporarily ambitions or, you know, kind of making changes to the to the broader um, roadmap, as it were? Well, when the uh, pandemic started, or when people really reckoned with the fact that we were in a pandemic last April, you know, we're, we're in the automotive industry and the live events business. <laughs> so there weren't a lot of live events and there weren't a lot of cars being sold. And so our stakeholders, right, our teams, our manufacturers, you know, that was, those were some, some really dark moments, right? And we said, you know, how are we going to be able to continue to put our product on? And the good news for, for performing the E, although we're a young company and, and, you know, smaller relative to, you know, other, other global sports, you know, our controlling shareholders are, are Liberty Media and, and Discovery. So we've got, you know, big, big media companies who are behind us for the long term. And what we agreed very early on was, you know, we have to continue to invest to deliver our product mm -hmm. to survive, right? And then that, you know, you have a bit of a paradox there where, you know, if you, if you hunker down too much, you know, your, your product disappears, right? And that's why this year we managed to, you know, we're going to manage to go to about 10 or 11 different venues and put on a 15-race calendar, which is actually more races than we've ever put on. And and why, how did we do that? Well, we did more doubleheaders. So I'll, I'll use a really simple example with doubleheaders. Um, you know, typically motorsport has one race over a race weekend, right? I mean, you've got like the Indy 500. That's an iconic 
race, Monaco, et cetera. Um, we said, well, you know, let's try to be efficient here. If we're going to go into a country, we're going to get all those approvals. You know, why don't we have two races, one on Saturday and one on Sunday? And, you know, if you're if you're a fan of baseball, like that's pretty common, right? You've got a home homestand or something like that. Um, initially, the reaction within the motorsport world was, why, why are we going to do two races? That's just right. not motorsport. And actually, what we found is the fans like it because, you know, there's back-to-back days. They know when to tune in. They know... Uh, you know, depending on what happens on the Saturday, you know, there's, you build some excitement for the Sunday race. So, so that's a simple example where we wouldn't have had a plan to do more double headers, but actually, uh, because of the forcing factor of, of COVID, we've, we've done them and actually we really like them. And so as I look to the future, you know, we want to have probably an 18 race calendar going into, uh, 2023. And, and one way to get there is to do more double headers. So you go into a city and you have more of a, a festival feel. So when fans are back, there'll be more activations, perhaps a concert the night before. So we can reimagine the complexion of our product. Um, and then the second thing, just quickly, is you know we have Gen 3 coming, what we call Gen 3, which is the third generation of the car. And you know it's a very significant investment uh, for our teams and manufacturers. And uh, we were trying to convince all of them to make that investment You know, in, in the middle of 2020, 2021, you're making six-year plans where you don't know, you know, what the future looks like in, in six weeks. That added some complexity. But again, what we did then is we said, okay, well, how do we make the, the sport sustainable for our teams and, and for everyone involved? And we've been working really closely with our governing body to put in place a cost cap, you know, or, or, or I guess in, in U.S. sports, what's known as a salary cap for us. It's more about how much the teams spend on mm-hmm. developing the car. Again, this is something that was unheard of. In, in motorsports, right? I mean, typically, motorsports has, has either been um, an investment for individuals who, who are excited to go racing, or, or for manufacturers who, you know, have perhaps have deeper budgets. When those factors changed, suddenly we had the ability to bring in a cost cap, which you know it's not signed yet, but I'm hopeful we'll get that done in time for 2022, and that just changes the, the financial sustainability of the sport. And you know, ultimately, you know, whether you're a manufacturer like Porsche or whether you're an independent owner like uh, Michael Andretti or, or, or Jay Penske who own teams in Formula E, you want to be able to make a return. And so uh, this is turning into a long minute answer to your question, but in simple terms, it, there's been some forcing factors that have allowed us to, I believe, set up you know stronger foundations for the future because of the pandemic. One thing that's great about your entire series, first of all, you're bringing a lot of business to every area where you race and it, I'm sure all the local restaurants uh, all over the world uh, appreciate that including the vendors can you expand more on that you mentioned something about that earlier but can you expand more on that right I mean Formula E is sort of on the one hand this global business which you know, attract some of the biggest car manufacturers and, and some of our sponsors or some of the big global brands that are household names. And, and you know, we, we operate on a on a global context that in, 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 from a marketing and, and promotional perspective. On the other hand, we, we very much go into a city and um, although the race weekend may only, you know, occur on Saturday and Sunday, uh, we actually come into the city usually about a month before um, and start building the racetrack and start working with the local authorities. And so it's a, it's a pretty integrated activity. And, you know, when we go into a city, we like to have a big uh, economic impact as well as a sustainability impact. So, you know, we invest in, for example, on the sustainability side, we, in each market we race in, we invest in a uh, renewable energy project to be able to offset all the carbon emissions that we 
do traveling to or operating the event, right? So we're trying to what we call race with no trace uh, in simple terms, you know, having a zero carbon footprint. Equally, we go into the cities and, you know, we have an economic impact, right? And I'll use an example in Mexico. Typically, we would race in Mexico City. We couldn't do that because the Hermanos Rodriguez, the, the main track in Mexico City, was a COVID hospital and vaccination centers. So we couldn't race there. This year, we went to Puebla. Um, a city that, you know, maybe some Americans know, but certainly very few Europeans knew what it was when we announced we were going there. It was the first international sports event that Puebla had had since the 1986 World Cup. Mm. Um, and, you know, the local people, we actually hosted about 10,000 fans, and, and, you know, we, we actually gave the tickets away to, to local health workers and, and, and the local community to see the look on their faces, you know, as, as our paddock, if you will, as our group was, you know, going out to local restaurants in Mexico to be able to put them on the map and to be able to have an impact was, was pretty, pretty moving and pretty powerful. Jamie, I, from what I understand, the battery life is 45 minutes uh, per vehicle. Um, do you see that uh, right, it's, increase? I mean, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Go, go, no, go ahead. So for, 45 minutes, is that correct? Well, so the, yeah, the battery capacity is 54 kilowatts, which roughly translates to a race of about 45 minutes um, okay. based on, you know, maximizing the energy efficiency and, and usage. And what we're looking to do over time is to try to, to expand that, right? Um, the, you know, we, we could have a much longer race with a much bigger battery and a heavier car. What we're doing in Gen 3 is actually the battery gets smaller, the technology advances, the battery gets smaller, it's 100 kilos or 220 pounds lighter. Um, which is pretty significant, and 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 the the powertrain is uh, going from 250 kilowatts to 350 kilowatts. So in, in American terms, that's that's north of 400 horsepower. So, you know, I, I'm I'm not a race engineer, but in simple terms, the car gets 100 220 pounds lighter and it gains you know 100 horsepower. That means it goes a lot faster. Right. <laughs> <And> so <laughs> we're uh, pretty excited about what that means for the Gen 3 race product. So we're always balancing um, two things, right? Performance. And, and sort of the excitement of, of speed, which is obviously a big component of motorsport, and then also from a manufacturer perspective, the range, right? How long can the can, can the battery last? Um, and that's probably the last remaining point of anxiety, right, for people who are picking up, you know, making a decision on an electric car. So, you know, we're going to look at pu- pushing the range as well into Gen Three. So, Jamie, as we wrap up here, uh, I do have to ask you because you're. Your career is fascinating, I think, to all of us having worked in major sports, in sort of the major sports, American football with the Rams and English football with with Man U. We talked about the Formula E fan. What a year it's been for fans in many ways. And I have to think that you have been looking at this with a more studied eye than most. What did we learn generally about fans? And I think about Super League and I think about, you know, all the engagement that we've seen at, at, across the world. What do you make of it? Well, first of all, I think on, you know, we, you have to remember whether you're, you know, an established sport with, more than 100 years of history or whether you're Formula E with seven or someone with an idea for a new sport that's coming up is right now, it, it starts and ends with the fan, right? And, and you have to think about any change you make through the lens of your customer, right? And whether it's a sport or, or a consumer business, you know, you need to think about your customer and look after your customer. And when I look at what we've tried to do in Formula E over the last 12 months, Everything is done through the lens of, 
you know, what's going to be attractive to the fans. So we talked earlier about the, the battery capacity, right? I mean, is that really interesting to a, to a sports fan, right? No, I mean, you're coming to a race, you're coming to an event for, for a bit of a release. You want to see some entertainment. You, the beauty of sport is, is it's the pinnacle of human endeavor, right? Pushing the boundaries, pushing uh, the, the art of the possible, uh, you know, in the eyes of what humans can do. And so, yes, there's some engineering elements about that, but ultimately we look at it and we say, okay, how do we make the race exciting for the fans? Because if we don't do that, um, there's no amount of interesting technology uh, storytelling that you can do that's going to pull people in. And then, you know, you touched on the Super League, you know, and, and, and you know, there's been a lot of comment about that. I, th- I would say just generally speaking, right, I mean, you have to really think about, okay, what does the what does the consumer want? What's yeah. the demand? What does the fan expect? And, you know, are you presenting a more compelling proposition or not. And I think if, if you don't you, you don't have a laser focus on the consumer proposition, you're going to struggle. And fans are very vocal uh, and fans are very engaged and, and they care a lot about these products, right? I mean, and that's, that's what sports is. It's, it's that passion, sometimes irrational passion and love for a brand, for their team. And, and you, know, you have to be wholeheartedly respectful uh, about that because it's a sacrosanct relationship. All right. Well, it's been really good catching up with you, especially uh, in a very, very busy time as you are prepping for this big race right here in our backyard. So good luck. Great to catch up with you. Happy to catch up with you. We talked about, we were talking before we came on air, about a year ago, you were in Hong Kong at the time. We were very much in the getting into the teeth of this pandemic. So um, happy to be on the other side of that. And uh, here's to a really good race uh, in New York and, and beyond as you uh, map out the calendar for this season and next. Thanks very much. It was uh, it was great to be on. And, and yes, I remember that call in, in Hong Kong when we all thought maybe this would be a couple months. So um, very much looking forward to seeing the, uh, the back of the pandemic. And, and I guess more importantly, in the near term, can't wait to get to New York. So thanks very much for having me. Well, we're delighted to be talking with Michael Andretti, and and the timeliness around this is terrific given Formula E coming to New York again feels a little bit more normal. We're going to have fans in the stands. It's all happening, and it's such an interesting moment, too, for the whole Formula E product. Michael, really good to have you with us. Tell us about Formula E from your perspective as someone who you know literally knows more about the racing world than almost anyone on the planet. I don't know about that, but uh, no, it's uh, it's been a great program. Um, it's really been fun to be in in a program that uh, with a new technology. Uh, we've been in since you know the ground floor, and and to see how far it's come in just a few years has been really pretty pretty exciting. You know, it's uh, you know we've gone from a, a, a car back about six six or seven years ago that couldn't even run the full distance now we're running almost you know 200 more horsepower and we're going a full distance you know with the race so um it's been cool to see that you know that technology develop and be a part of it it seems like now with the the e-racing is that the, the term carburetor is now a thing of the past I, exactly. I, I i just this has got to be the future of the way things are going to be down the road well, it could be, could be. You know, I don't know where it's going to go. With, you know, in the end, um, but I know electric's getting stronger and stronger. 
Um, you know, there are other alternative fuels out there like hydrogen and things like that. But, uh, you know, where it's going to go, uh, I don't know 100%, but I would say at the moment, you know, electric seems to be definitely leading the way. Hey, Mike. Uh, Michael, it's Mike Lynch up in Boston. How much pressure has your last name put on you uh, in, in your current venture in your career? Um, well, I think when I started out and, you know, when I was driving the first part of my career, there was a lot of pressure. You know, people expected a lot out of you. You know, you you go out and you have a good day and you finish second or third and they ask what happened, you know, type thing. And, uh, you know, it, it was... Uh, you know, it was a, it was tough starting out, but I think it actually helped me when I really you know got into the big leagues because I learned to deal with pressure at an early age. And uh, you know, but uh, you know, it was always it was all part of it. You know, there was pluses and minuses to everything, right? <laughs> and so it's interesting too, Michael, to to think about the the arc of your career and sort of where you are now, and and putting together this portfolio of which Formula E is, is really but a part. How do you sort of build that? How did you sort of build that? And and what's your what's kind of the the overriding vision for it? Well, yeah, I mean, when I first bought the team here, when it was called Team Green. I- you know, I was driving for the team, and it had a really good base of really good people. And, uh, you know, we just slowly just built on that. And, uh, you know, that's that's what it's about, you know, building your base of people that uh, you can trust and know that can get the job done. And, you know, that's what we've been able to do. And we always have our eye out for new ventures. Um, you know, we're not we're, – we're, we, people used to think we're just IndyCar racing, but we're – you know, we're all racing, whatever – you know, whatever could work and fit into our program, we're going to look at, you know, and uh, we're we're constantly looking at different things. You know, we're looking at sports cars and, and other types of racing as well. Hopefully get back in the, the rally cross and things like that. So, yeah, we're we're always open for something new. And, uh, you know, that's been sort of exciting to be able to be in all different types of racing. You know, you learn a lot from different types, and and it helps. It helps all of them. You know, the overall uh, of the team. You know, because there's things you can learn in one side that can help the other, and things like that. So it's been it's been a lot of fun. Well, if if you can tell us a bit more about that, I'm fascinated by that notion of you know learning across the different modalities, uh, as it were. Is that in terms of technique? Is it turn in terms of sponsorship and and business and operations is it is it all of the above is there is there something that jumps to mind when you think about that i think it's all of the above you know i think uh you know there's deals like with uh sponsors you can spread you can give you can offer them different types of racing um some choose to do you know more than one some choose to do all of them some choose to do just one so it's nice to have that to offer um but then you also have, you know, procedures are different in one series to another. But then there might be some things that, hey, you know, they do it like this. It might work over here, you know, and uh, and it does. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of those type of things. I think of so many well-known racing families. You think of the Petties, you think of the Allisons, you think of the Earnhardts, and, of course, the Andrettis. How much of an impact did your father have, Mario Andretti, who people don't know, won the 1969 Daytona 500 and the 1967 Daytona 500. Uh, how much of that impact did your father have on you? 
obviously a ton. You know, um, I don't think it was more. I wasn't that directly uh, from him. It was more just being the son of and being exposed to all of it. Um, you know, I uh, yeah. You, you, you go one way or other. You know, you go one way that you just really don't want to be a part of it. You know, you know, or you go into it that you want to have more of it and be more get more into it and uh you know i chose to go that way and luckily i was good enough to be able to go and make a career out of it mike uh last year was not a great year for anybody um covid etc um tell me about the bounce back this year yeah it's uh it's definitely nice to be out there and you know like for instance at indianapolis running indianapolis in august and not having any fans was just the weirdest thing in the world. And uh, it was nice to get closer back to normal, you know, this May when we had 135, 140,000 people and it started to feel more regular again. So it's been great to get that feeling back. It was been, it was very strange going to some of these places and not having fans and, you know, and also just, you know, for our sponsors now being able to use it again, uh, because a lot of them you couldn't bring any guests and things like that. So uh, it's nice to get back to normal. You know, it's like last year we just tried to not even think about, hope, you know, that it didn't even happen. You know, it was just, right. uh, you know, we're lucky we were able to get through it and survive for sure. And so what do you think that the net effect is going to be on, on the business of racing overall of the pandemic in terms of, you know, whether it's sponsor mix, whether it is, you know, different series that have, you know, maybe pun intended sort of accelerated in their ambition. And, and I'm thinking maybe, you know, a Formula E in this case, like, are, are there things that have been altered by, by the course of recent history? I think they were altered temporarily, but I, I think, you know, things are getting more back to normal in mm-hmm. some place. Some things there's even more interest because people missed it, you know. Because when they don't have it, you know, you, when you don't have something, you want it more. And uh, I think that's part of what we're experiencing now. You know, I think uh, people were hungry for for having events and stuff like that again. And uh, and because of that, you know, it's, uh, you know, you look at our IndyCar grid, for instance. You know, we're having, you know, 26 cars at Mid-Ohio, which we never were able to have. And it's unbelievable that, you know, that things like that are happening. You know, you think... I think it would have been harder to jump to get back from it, but I think it's because people missed it, so they're getting into it even harder than they did before. Have you thought about? That makes sense to you? No, yeah. it does. <laughs> have you thought about uh, maybe NASCAR in terms of maybe one day owning a NASCAR team? You know, I looked at it. I was close three different times um, where you know. I started to get excited that I think, oh, it's going to come together. And then for whatever reason, it fell apart. And so, you know, always looking at it, but it's got to be done right. I'm not going to do it, you know, half-ass and not be competitive. I want to be able to say if we're going to do it, that we're going to be able to do it the right way. And, you know, unfortunately, those opportunities that I had that I think would have put us in a competitive situation fell apart in the end. So, you know, never say never. Michael, you compete, I think, in seven different series uh, right now. Uh, are you a hands-on guy, or are you pretty good at delegating authority? No, I'm good at delegating. You know, I, I think that uh, I try not to micromanage, but I do manage. You know, I'm 
I'm involved in every single series. Um, I know what's going on in every series, but you know, if you're going to hire the best people, you got to let them go and do their job. And that's what I try to do. And, uh, you know, it seems to work. And, and part of it, Michael, as you know, better than, than we do is, you know, partnerships that, that you do have to form. And, you know, since we are talking a lot about formula E, you know, tell us about that partnership and, and sort of how, um, I believe it, it's you and Roger Griffith. So, sort of how you guys work together. Like, what's the what's the vibe? How do you how do you sort of build out something like that? Especially when you're talking about new technologies and and a and a nascent, relatively nascent series, I guess. Yeah. So you know, uh, we were lucky to have a guy like Roger that was you know working with us. Uh, we had hired him from uh, HPD, which is Honda's performance side that uh, does the engines in IndyCar and and uh, the timing of Hiram and then the opportunity of, of Formula E was about the same time and it worked out great. He's done a really good job, you know, basically running the program for us. Uh, you know, we uh, we have weekly meetings with him to see what's going on and actually there's even more meetings than that that happen, you know, here in Indianapolis with him and, and the team over there and so... You know we're we're on on the pulse 100 um, percent, but again it goes back to you know letting guys like him, you know, do his job and not interfere too much. You have seen since you're still in Indianapolis, you have seen the major ownership change. You were there racing, obviously, when the Tony Holman era was there, and then the Holman family had it, uh, and then uh, it just recently went to Roger Penske. Uh, the track has changed and evolved in ownership. I guess the the big question is, what has changed in racing from when you first got in to today? Oh, God. (laughs) Tons. You know, it's funny, you know, when I started racing, I'd look at, uh, you know, the cars that Dad started out in and it looked like dinosaurs, you know, and then when I got halfway through my career, I looked at the cars that I started out and they looked like dinosaurs. You know, it's... uh, it's amazing technology. Um, you know, I think the biggest uh, gain, you know, when you look at it, is the safety aspect of things that were developed into the cars. You know, over the years, because you look at, you look back now and say, I can't believe I even drove that race car. Right. <laughs> it's so dangerous. You know what I mean? And uh, so it's really been cool to see, you know, all those innovations and and the cars are way way safer than they were. You know when I started and they're really, really safer than when dad started, you know? So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, that, that's probably been the biggest thing that, that I've seen. I was showing my son a clip of the 67 Indy 500 and he looks at me and he says, looking at the cars, that looks like a hot dog with wheels. And I'm like, you know, and then I got mad. I'm like, you know, you just go over in the corner. But, but you're but right. I think that those guys were sitting between 200 gallons of methanol in just metal containers on each side of them. You know, I mean, it's things like that, you know, they're like insane. They were just bombs ready to go off. So crazy. <laughs> And, and, and Michael, in a, in a follow-up to that, fifty years from now, are we still going to see fossil fuel races, or will they all be uh, e vehicles? I don't know if it's going to be e vehicles. I don't know if it's going. I don't. I, I think eventually fossil fuels will go away, and it's going to be something like hydrogen or some other type of fuel that that'll be developed. 
um, you know, that is better for the environment and things like that, you know, zero carbon type thing. So, you know, that's what I, what I see. So, Michael, as we wrap up with you here, I mean, I, I guess the the one thing I, I'm also curious about, and we talked with Jamie Regal about this last week um, over at Formula E, this whole notion of the consumer's role in something like Formula E and sort of propelling it, again, pun intended, sort of forward more into the consciousness. We're more concerned about sustainability broadly. We're more uh, aware of climate change and, and all of the the contributions and contributing factors there. How much does that, in, in your mind, help the, the business of the sport? It's huge. It's huge. You know, when you go to make your pitch, uh, you know, at a sponsor, I mean, first things they, they ask about, you know, you, you pitch, say, IndyCar, you pitch some of the other series, and then you bring up Formula E or Extreme E that we're in as well. Uh, they say, hey, tell me about that, you know, because a lot of their programs with a lot of these companies are in, you know, have to do with sustainability and things like that. So there's a lot of, a lot of interest there for sure. Michael Barr, defer the last question to you. This is your this is your hot zone, man. Oh man, my goodness! I, I, I guess I, I guess the biggest thing that I think of uh, is that, and we were kind of talking about it off air, is how you have taken the Andretti name and made it your own, and and it's from the fact that I mean, especially now as a car owner, uh, and and it kind of goes back to the question we asked earlier. It, the, there are headaches involved when you own a race car. Can you take us through that process? <laughs> yeah, there's lots of headaches, I can assure you. Um, you know, it's actually, though, it's a lot of fun. I enjoy it. You know, the only side that I, you know, that I don't really like about the ownership is, you know, having to go out and try to run, raise the money, you know, to run these things because uh, it's a big machine. It takes a lot to run it. So that's always a bit of a, pain but uh you know when you do get a program that's fully funded uh it's a lot of fun you know to be able to do what you love and you know i feel like i'm the luckiest guy in the world you know when a lot of guys when they retire from the sport you know they they're sort of like fish you know fish out of water and you know it's sort of what i saw with my father a little bit and and uh you know for me i didn't want to be like that i want to have still have a reason to wake up in the morning and and uh you know that's where I decided I wanted to be in the ownership side. And luckily I was able to buy the team that I was driving for at that time from Barry Green. And uh, it's worked out really great for me. So like I, like I said, I feel really lucky that I'm still involved with the sport that I've loved and been a part of my life, the whole, my whole life. So, well, Michael Andretti, really, really good to spend some time with you. Um, safe travels to New York as it all gets underway uh, this weekend. Formula E, it's all happening uh, there in Brooklyn, a part of, as we said, a broad racing portfolio that, that you're overseeing. Uh, good to spend some time with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was great spending time with you guys. Thanks. Thank you very much. All right. Well, our thanks to both Jamie Regal and Michael Andretti, two very busy guys this weekend. So check out what they are doing. Those cars are going to be racing through Brooklyn, the latest stop for the Formula E Tour. A lot coming together in the world and in the world of sports that is really propelling that sport forward. We talked to Michael Andretti. This is the Bloomberg Business of Sports podcast. I'm a giddy Michael Barr. You can follow me on Twitter at Big Bar Sports.
Zoom, zoom. This is Lynchy. You can follow me at LynchyWCBB. And I'm Jason Kelly at Jason Kelly News. We're here each and every Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday talking about the world of money and sports. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports on Bloomberg Radio, around the world and online, wherever you get your podcasts.